Hi, I'm Amanda, and you might not know me yet, but I help with a ton of things behind the scenes here at CBP. My favorite part is getting to learn from industry professionals, just like the one you're about to hear from. But wouldn't it be awesome to connect with these people in person? I thought so too. And that's why I'm going to CBP Connects in Milwaukee this June. What's CBP Connects? I'm so glad you asked. CBP Connects is a three-day networking and educational workshop packed full of inspiring people and valuable information. Register today at craftbeerprofessionals.org. See you there. Beers and cans. Who'd have thunk it? Today, I'm excited to be joined by Tyler Willie, the founder and CEO of Ironheart Canning. Ironheart's celebrating their 10th anniversary, and we're excited to dive into the evolution of mobile canning over the past decade. But Tyler, first, you know, how's everything going today? You're in beautiful Pennsylvania. How's everything in your world? Yeah, good, good. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, thank you. Great to be here. And, uh, you know, really appreciate the chat with you, Andrew. This is great. Now, you would How about yourself? Oh, yeah. I'm in Virginia and it's sunny today. I'm at a computer screen looking outside at a beautiful day. So I hope to escape in just a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> great. So tell us a little bit, you know, about Ironheart. Tell us, you know, what does Ironheart do for anyone not familiar? Sure, sure, sure. So, um, you know, so Ironheart, um, we are a mobile canning company. Um, I mean, at this point, everybody, I, I would, I think in the, in the craft beer industry generally knows what mobile canning is. It's a, a pretty um, a pretty widespread uh, service that's offered, I think, through the entire craft beer industry at this point. Um, but generally, just to recap, I mean, we're an outsourced service provider um, exclusively focused on being the canning infrastructure for our customers. Um, we bring all of the canning equipment, all the expertise and the know-how to our customers. Um, all of our equipment is loaded into trucks and driven to our customers' sites. We unload everything bring our equipment in uh, into uh, the brewery or the, the facility that we're going to package at, um, set up next to the finishing tanks, drain their tanks, um, leave all the finished product there, clean our equipment, pack it up and leave for the day. Um, and that's generally the, the service that we provide. Um, you know, at the end of the day, Ironheart itself, um, we're canners. I mean, that's all we do is canning. Um, that's our focus. That's what we're focused on at this point um you know and i think what we do is that we offer a plug and play kind of right size service um with a focus on quality and execution to our customers um and also um also handle kind of logistics material supply and so forth for our customers so i think it, you know in a nutshell that's really what you know what ironheart does at this point now you talk about your trucks go in they get the job done and they leave how many trucks do you have on your fleet yeah uh great question um Right now, we actually have um, we actually own um, 85 canning lines um, under the Ironheart name at this point. Um, in any given day, uh, we probably have about 50, you know, 50 uh, can of those canning lines out in operation. Um, a lot of those at this point are dedicated canning lines that we actually have parked at um, at some of our customers, some of our partners' facilities, um, where we just go in and operate them. Um, so, in a mobile fashion, I would say, and you know, in any given day, we're probably between. 35 to 40 um, mobile canning lines out, out there in operation at this point. Wow. And how many people are helping with that operation? Yeah. Um, right now we have about 170 people um, here at Ironheart. Uh, that's, that's, you know, that's filling our uh, 30 warehouses that we have um, kind of spread across our, our, entire, our entire footprint. We're going to dive into your story in a little bit, but 170 people is absolutely amazing for 10 years. So congrats on the growth there. And, you know, 
I know a lot of breweries that you work with, but do you can just beer or what do you can? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, we started, um, you know, when it was just me and a truck, um, 10 years ago, we started exclusively with beer and, uh, and cider. I kind of put beer and cider together into one category. Um, uh, but we, we kind of started exclusively and we we're really hundred percent beer and cider, um, probably the first two years of Ironheart. And, um, you know, now that kind of like, uh, you know, craft industry is kind of going down craft, like kind of all beverage, right. Um, we're canning all kinds of things at this point. So, um, um, you know, really, um, we've gone from a hundred percent beer and cider to now actually we're only about 65% beer and kind of 35%, um, other craft products, uh, you know, wine, ready to drink cocktails, uh, specifically, um, you know, seltzers, water, all kinds of non-alcoholic products, energy drinks, a lot of coffee, um, just kind of, you know, run the gambit on kind of craft beverages, CBD drinks. Now, you know, now THC drinks are, are, are coming along in a big way in some areas. Um, so, um, you know, so we're, we're kind of, you know, really, really diving into a whole lot of other products and, you know, and that percentage of beer is continuing to kind of get smaller as we go. That's really interesting. Have you gotten a call to come can any unique products when you had that call? You were like, what in the world is this or anything that just surprised you? Uh, yeah, we've had some interesting reach outs. Um, uh, I one in particular, I remember somebody asked us to can smelt. Um, okay, well, what in, is, uh, you know, I am not familiar with that like, one. Tyler. It's like fish. It's like, uh, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, something that you fish with. Uh, <laughs> so, um, we've had people reach out. I mean, not knowing that it's beverage, you know, to can all kinds of different products that you would put into cans, food products and stuff. Mustard. How did your team like feel that. that day when they showed up thinking they were going to can some beer and then you put them on the smelt line? Yeah, <laughs> they were surprised. It was uh, April Fool's Day, you know, um, in 2016. <laughs> no, but <laughs> uh, and uh, it never got to that point. <laughs> but I'm sure everyone on the Ironheart team, I mean, they probably get to meet so many great people in the craft beverage world. You know, what yeah. would you say is the thing they like most about working for Ironheart? Man, that's a that's a really, really good question. Um, you know, I think uh, there, there's a couple things about Ironheart that are really unique about what we do. I, I don't think there's a, a job out there that really fits kind of what we do, you know, and because um, um, our job is interesting. It's a hard, hard work. We work really, really hard. I mean, our average days are, um, you know, I mean, uh, can be, you know, can be, um, you know, shorter days, but, our, you know, our average days out in the field are probably in the, you know, 10 to 12 and sometimes 14 hour day range. Right. So it's it's hard work what we do. Um, uh, but, um, you know, from my Ironheart perspective, I mean, we work in a fantastic industry. I mean, I, and I like to think what we do is, um, is fantastic. I love what we do, um, out there. And there's nothing better than going out and like canning beer or canning, you know, cocktails or so forth like that. And the industries are filled with great people and it's a great environment. And, you know, and when you get in that environment, uh, with the great people, um, the music's going, you know, um, uh, generally I think everybody at our customers, everybody within Ironheart, just filled with great people. Um, it's a lot of fun and it's very rewarding on what we do. So I think, you know, the, the people that are drawn to us um, to work here, you know, uh, take a lot of pride in what they do, um, you know, uh, and it take a lot of pride in the tangible result that we get because we do a lot on a daily basis. I mean, you know, we're typically leaving four to five to 600 cases of, of product behind um, super tangible revol revol result for people out there. And then just the people, everybody that we work with is just fantastic. And it's, like I said, a great environment. Um, running a canning line, they're really cool pieces of equipment. So anybody who likes working with equipment is um, really cool. But I think one of the other benefits to Ironheart is um, now that we're a little bit bigger, we have, I mean, firstly, fantastic benefit system. But, um, you know, we work in 
I would say the kind of the coolest parts of um, of the eastern half of the of this country. And, um, you know, people that work with us are generally younger, um, you know, um, generally probably in their 20s, um, like to experience those different kind of pockets of, of craft. And, you know, when we work in all those pockets and one of the coolest benefits to us is that if once you work with us, you have access to anywhere that we work, um, you know, and can go and, um, you know, a crew from our Asheville, North Carolina warehouse um, can go up and can up in our Burlington, Vermont warehouse, you know, and spend time up there and really experience the other areas and the other people. So, um, yeah, I think that's, you know, one of the kind of the best, best perks for sure. Yeah, that's really neat. Thanks for sharing that. So, yeah, and, and also what I think also one thing too, is, you know, a big thing is opportunity growth, right? And we, you know, we started, um, 10 years ago, it was just me 10 years ago. And now we have uh, like 170 people here and all along that way has been all just opportunity that's been created, you know, from one to where it's at. And everybody here um, has come along with that, right? And, you know, all the people that are kind of the top people at Ironheart now were people that started from, from the ground and from the beginning and have worked their way up and experienced that level of opportunity growth with us. Um, and that's what we're filled with. I mean, all of our, all of our people that run Ironheart now um, are people that have been here and worked their way up and have, have, have gained that opportunity. And, and that's really what we do here is we promote from within, start from the ground, work the way up just like I did when I started out there. So no, I love a good entrepreneurial journey and it's fantastic to hear how you've gone from just yourself to 170 people. But I want to rewind a little bit because I imagine when you were just a kid on the playground, you weren't telling everyone you wanted to run a mobile canyon line. Yeah. So if we flash back, however long that is, you know, what did you want to be when you grew up, Tyler? Um, <laughs> I guess when is a, is a great time. I mean, it's gone probably through evolution. Originally I wanted to, be a professional baseball player that dream got crushed um because <laughs> i'm only five foot ten um and then uh and then uh i probably wanted to be a veterinarian at some point um and then um i'm good with numbers so uh you know when i you know went out of college i was like all right what do i do with numbers i'm good at that um i was actually an accountant at a, at a school which is the least fun job in the world um nothing against accountants I'm, I'm still an accountant at heart um but uh um you know i think that that journey kind of led me to um you know figuring out you know i think more what you want out of life and to me i i always i kind of got to the point where it wasn't necessarily a specific thing um that it was but it was more just wanting to um have something that was you know that i owned that i started um you know and um you know and was able to kind of grow from the ground up and um you know, and that's kind of what led me down the path to where I'm at, which is I knew I wanted to kind of open a small business and and run a small business and try to make my livelihood and survive off of that. And um, and that was kind of step number one. And then step number two was, um, as you know, I've been homebrewing since I was in college, really loved the industry, you know, at the time in the late 2000s, you know, 2010 um, and 2011, 12 craft beer industry was really blowing up and just a tremendous amount of opportunity in the industry in general um you know and um and that's kind of what got me into it and then one thing led to another i was gonna open a brewery and then um saw this and what was the brewery to... gonna be called tyler Ironheart. yeah i figured you were gonna yeah. say that. <laughs> yeah yeah um so uh but yeah that you know i think that that's really the path it wasn't necessarily like a specific thing like canner but eventually it got to the point of just wanting to be an entrepreneur and um, and, and, and run, own and run a small business that we, we were able to kind of, you know, have a livelihood off of. Well, I, I hear that you wanted to run a business. I hear you had a strong accounting background. I hear that you, you were a home brewer, but why a mobile canning company? Like how did we get from college to there? Yeah. Um, 
That's a great point. I mean, because I, you know, um, as I was kind of, you know, in the in the in the finance industry and being an accountant for about ten years, um, I knew that I did not want to do that anymore. And um, and I, you know, like I said, I really wanted to figure out a way to own my own business. Um, at the time, um, you know, I was an avid home brewer, and um, as any avid home brewer, I think around that time. You know why not open a brewery and we and, all had that yeah, idea at some point exactly and um and so uh you know so i was you know i spent probably two years working on a business plan for a brewery and um and then in the determination of packaging what do you do especially at that time it was a very big decision between cans and bottles right um big decision at that time and um you know and so i was kind of looking around for um, equipment and so forth like that. And, um, I came across the, you know, the, the early days that mobile canning had like just started. This was in 2012 and, uh, out on the West coast, there was the uh, can van and then mobile canning in Denver. Um, it started and, um, you know, it kind of put a light bulb in my head and, um, started looking a little bit more into it and, and really came to the realization that, you know, there's so many good people getting into craft beer. There's so many people that know so much more than I do about brewing and making good beer that, um, it would probably be a better decision to um, work with all of them instead of competing with them, um, you know, in, in that space. And that's kind of how I, you know, got down the mobile canning path. So you were a home brewer, you launched Iron Heart. At that point, I imagine, you know, you weren't part of what we call the craft beer industry at that point. You were someone who had an idea who wanted to provide value. You know, how did you get people to trust the brand and how did you kind of start networking with people in the industry? Yeah, I mean, um, Good question. Um, I wasn't in the industry at all. I mean, so I um, I really went to work on uh, firstly on canning, right? Because at that point, cans were not the package of choice. It was they were new. They were just there was a little bit of cans going on at the West Coast. There was like zero cans in craft beer out on the East Coast. You know, we're talking like 2012 time frame. Um, and, um, you know, and, and so nobody really had any idea about cans themselves. Um, about the economics behind it, about packaging, you know, craft beer was, um, and I all mean, the at breweries. that point, smelt just come, came in cans. What else were we yeah. buying in cans anyways? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, so I, I you went to work on kind of the, the business case for it and then also the case for cans for the future, right? So I had to sell both of those um, to people and then confidence for sure. Confidence in letting me handle people's product. I had no, no idea what I was doing. I'd never run a canning line. Um, so I, I worked really, really hard at, um, you know, trying to be as professional as I could, learning as much as I could about the canning process, getting as much expertise as I could so I could really go out there and talk and, and tell people and give them the confidence that um, that I could handle their product. And, you know, fortunately, we had a, a, a really good network of early adopters um, who, uh, you know, I, I went out and I, I really just, you know, at the time I was living in Connecticut, so I was really kind of focused more locally around there. In the New York City market, kind of up through the Boston market at that time, um, and um, you know, just went to a ton of networking events, as many um, you know, as many beer festivals as I could, as many uh, just events as I could to just talk to people and um, tell them about the business that I was going down the path of. And so I, I lined up a bunch of people even before I started. Um, you know, so when I got my equipment, got trained on it, learned how to run it, by the time I was ready to kind of start canning. Um, I had a bunch of people lined up right away um, out there. Very cool. Is yeah. there anyone who inspired you or mentored you during those early days that you're really thankful for? Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, the the uh, two people in particular. I mean, so the, the mobile canning um, there's a mobile canning company in in Denver um, who I, I basically went out and learned from them 
and they helped me get my first canning line together. Um, you know, I, I actually, uh, I actually went out and they allowed me to run because uh, we we buy wild goose machines who are um, made in Denver in Denver greater area um, out there. So I actually got my equipment there, and they allowed me to run my equipment and learn on their customers out in the Denver market, which was fantastic. Um, so I learned from them, and then. There was craft canning also in Portland, um, Oregon. It was run by name uh, guy by the name of Owen Lingley, um, who I've been talking to a great advisor of mine. You know, he was started about, you know, a little bit, little bit less than a year before me, so he'd already kind of got things going. And um, you know, we've been great friends and colleagues, and for the for the you know for the future, and kind of been able to really help each other. So, and that's awesome to have that collaborative spirit in craft beer. I mean, people are doing the same thing as you wanted to help you out. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I'd say that's you know it's it's kind of um, inherent in the industry at that time, right? Um, you know, uh, across the board, it's still there, but I think a little less so because it's a little bit more competitive now. Uh, but so looking at those early years, you know, every startup has some fun stories to share. Are there any crazy stories you remember from you know it was only a decade ago, those early years? Is there anything that yeah. you look back on and like, oh my gosh? I've tried to like black out that point out of my <laughs> memory. Um, but um, no, I mean, there's a lot of them. I mean, I spent two years, um, you know, those first those first couple years after we started, um, you know, sleeping in my truck on the side of the road seven days a week, you know, uh, 20 hours a day, driving all around New England, um, a crazy person. Um, you know, I think the, the, the probably the craziest story, one of that, um, you know, one that uh, I think actually was a, a, a changing moment in Ironheart was uh, was we were um, had a, we, we had worked with other half in, in Brooklyn, um, you know, from when they first got started. Um, uh, and and uh, I was coming from a job uh, from Vermont, um, did a packaging job up in Vermont. I, I can't remember who it was. It was probably Citizen Cider, I think. And then um, driving down a job in Burlington, Vermont. Um, on let's say a Monday and then it was at other half on Tuesday in Brooklyn. Right. And, you know, it was always like a 70 barrel run, um, up at, up at citizen cider. And so, um, and then on other half we had to, uh, we stored all their cans for them. They were all printed cans and, um, they also did big runs and we were probably doing 50 barrels, you know, their, uh, 500 cases. And, um, and so I had to, I had a big truck back in those days, um, where I could, I could carry like, you know, 50, 60 barrels of cans and supplies and all the canning equipment with me. And, um and so but i needed to stop back and load all those up between between the jobs so um you know i ended up getting to uh getting to my warehouse in connecticut at like you know probably like two o'clock in the morning loading everything up um you know by myself in the truck at two o'clock in the morning and then um got ready and was about to take off so i could go get you know a half hour of sleep and um and uh as i'm pulling out the driveway i realized oh um they uh i have all green everything cans in the truck and they um they were running to run you know hop showers or something different so i had to go back and unload everything and then reload the right cans and uh and then i just ended up just <laughs> so that was a moment where i was like okay you need to figure something else out here because uh this is uh i'm gonna die <laughs> did you get there on time yeah 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 of course yeah knocked it out <laughs> very cool now we all know you know what ironheart does in your name but i'd love to learn a little bit more and shift the conversation to what ironheart's about talk to me a little bit about your mission the core principles of ironheart yeah absolutely absolutely i mean i think one of the one of the big things um for us is 
Wall, um, just as a general company, let's say, you know, as opposed to like, you know, our kind of our mission and what we do. I mean, as a general company, um, you know, we may seem like we're a big company, right? Um, you know, we have 30 warehouses. We're, you know, from Maine to Miami, now out to Minneapolis, you know, so we really kind of cover everything east of the Mississippi at this point. Um, but we are still a, a small business and we are run as a very small business and very entrepreneurial um, with a huge culture of ownership out there. And we're super local. I mean, we have all we have 30 warehouses over that footprint about every three hours of drive time, very small teams and very independent teams um, throughout that footprint, you know, teams of let's say two to seven, two to seven people um, at each of our warehouses um, who are very ingrained in the local community. I mean, they are local, they're there, they're they're part of the local craft scene everywhere they are. And that's huge that, you know, I think so you know, kind of the entrepreneurialism, the ownership that we drive, and then, um, and then the, you know, the local aspect of being local and agreeing with our, 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 you know, our customers is a big piece of it, you know, and I think that that's a, a driving factor in kind of how we operate and how we run our business. Um, you know, from, a, from, from kind of a mission perspective, um, you know, really, um, you know, our, I think our, our biggest focus is building long-term partnerships. Um, you know, we are focused on being partners with our customers for the long term, and that's huge as their canning infrastructure. You know, our goal is to fit into our customers' model, not have them have to fit into us, right? And then, on the canning side, um, our our primary objective is is generally to be the best at what we do, um, not just a mobile canning perspective, but just canning. Period. Um, you know, we need to be the gold standards for canning. That's really what we want because. You know, really, at the end of the day, you know, we need to be better at what we do than anybody than anybody can do for themselves. And I'm saying that people can't get to us, but like that's how we have to do it, because um, people have all kinds of other options to package their product. They could do it themselves. You know, we have competition generally in any market that we operate and um, um, people can send it out to other places to co-pack and so forth. So we have to be better. And that's a big focus on us. So continual improvement, always getting better training, quality, better process. Um, you know, and I believe firmly that, and this is a huge part of what, you know, what I tell everybody here at Ironheart, we're big believers in, is that there's, firstly, there's nothing more important than the quality of the finished product. Every can matters that comes off the line. Um, and packaging is the gatekeeper um, to your product, um, you know, and we're the gatekeepers. And, I, you know, in my opinion, um, and I'm biased because it's what we do, but I, I generally believe that packaging is the most important part of the brewing process, you know, the beverage making process, because we're the last people to touch that product before it goes out to the market, you know, and we really have the opportunity to make or break our customer's product and what goes out there into the world. Um, we can't make it better. The packaging process cannot make that product better. Our job is to protect it and we can only make it worse, you know, and that we'll never make it worse by nothing. Like we have some impact. I mean, there's going to be some level of oxidation, there's going to be some level of um, exposure that happens in the packaging process. And our, our job is to minimize that as much as possible, um, kind of like ice skating uphill, you know, but our, our business model is kind of based around those pro the, those concepts. Um, and, and, you know, being that gatekeeper. So um, yeah, that, that's, that's generally what you know, what we're about. And that's, that, that's the mission that, that we that we run by. And one thing that you mentioned that resonates with me is, I mean, you're empowering your team to get the work done independently, which is awesome. You put the trust in everyone you have across the country. But yeah. my question, Tyler, is, you know, how do you properly train them and give them the skills for success? Yeah, um, fantastic question. You know, one thing that I'm also a believer is, is, um, you know, ownership. We're a small company, so, um, you know, we can't 
have people looking over shoulders, micromanaging. We just we can't do that. We're a small company, and I don't want to do that. That's not the company that I want to have. I want to have that entrepreneurialism, that ownership, people driven for it. So how do you kind of get that level of consistency? You know, it's funny when I was kind of starting and we were starting to get bigger and I was, you know, doing all the catering myself and then trying to figure out how do I get other people to do this and and like, you know, and, and be able to trust that, right? Because it's our reputation and so forth. Um, I would always, you know, Panera was a place that I would always eat at because they're everywhere and they're, it's the exact same everywhere. And I was always Very admire that. Like, how can Panera in like this middle of nowhere be just as good, right? And the same thing, it was always, always crazy to me. And, and I always thought like, you know, how do we get to that point? Um, you know, one thing that I came, um, that I came to the realization is, is that you can't manage everybody. You could give them the tools to succeed. But at the end of the day, the one thing that really drives, um, drives people is culture. Culture is the manager when there's no manager there. And the decisions that you make are driven by your culture and the, the, the principles that are there within the business. And so establishing those was huge, you know, establishing our mission, establishing kind of our core cultural beliefs, our core values was massive because that's what's driving people to make the right decisions. Right. And then giving them the tools. Um, you know, uh, I think I always had the concept of like 80, 80% rule where you kind of give people 80% of the tools and then they have 20, you know, and the rest of it's 20% intuition driving the rest. And then culture is kind of leading them through that. So we focused hard on training, um, and building a really uh, systematic training program to give our people the tools out there that they need to be as consistent as possible um, and as a uh, as high level of an expertise and consistency as of an expertise level as we can out there in the world. And so our training program is really rigorous and it's long, you know. And um, for us, training somebody to go out there and run a canning line independently, um, we kind of call it being released into the wild at that point. Um, um, we're, it, it's like usually a minimum of around nine months of somebody here, a lot, a lot of times upwards to a year. Um, you know, whereas a little bit of difference, like if you get trained, you buy a canning line, the manufacturer comes out, they give you a two day crash course and off the races you go. Well, we, we can't, you know, we can't afford that. We can't do that. Um, and so, um, we're literally before an operator kind of, firstly, they start at the ground level. Everybody comes in at the ground level and works their way up kind of through the training process. But our, our kind of, um, our business is actually based around working up, you know, people actually, we don't hire people just for the entry level. We actually hire people for the advanced levels and they just work their way up. So our, our whole system is based around promotion, um, gains, experience, knowledge, and so forth. And we want, our goal is everybody to be able to run a canning line, um, not just have kind of the, you know, somebody at entry level stay there. So, um, that's really what we really focused on hard was, was kind of that, that building, firstly, that training foundation, um, and then, and then scaling that. And that's, and that's, that's, I think the, the keys to, you know, how we were able to kind of be consistent everywhere and everywhere is, isn't ultimately entirely consistent, right? That's a really hard thing to manage, but we're, you know, at a point now where we're better than we've been and, um, you know, in a really good spot at this point. So I have two follow-up questions for you to touch on what you just said, Tyler. Yeah. So the first is I love how organized and lengthy your training program is. That's extremely important. You know, at what point in the Ironheart journey did you implement that? Um, it was after I kind of, uh, there were like two phases in Ironheart. Um, and the first phase was just kind of me, complete owner operator out there in the business. You know, when I, when I started, it was just me in a truck, um, out there and, um, and I drug my wife and my sister in. So it was me and my wife and my sister then. Um, and, um, and, and then, 
over the course of the next two years, um, you know, it was kind of growing. We went from that and then we, we got the three canning lines into the five canning lines, all in New England specifically. I was still out there running a canning line every single day. And, um, you know, we were just kind of like fighting a war and, and, uh, and really just kind of out there battling every day. And there was nothing systematic about it at that point um, other than just kind of getting it done. Um, and at that point, also realizing, all right, how do, you know, how do I turn this into a sustainable business? Because what I'm doing is not sustainable and I can't ask anybody else to do what I'm doing right now. So um, trying to figure out how to like ask other people to do what I was doing and, and, and kind of turn Ironheart into a sustainable business. I mean, there was a time two years in where I just asked myself, do we need to just close our doors? Because I can't, I don't understand how we can turn this business into a long-term business. It's just not possible. And, um, you know, at that point, um, I actually sold the majority of Ironheart, made the decision to do it because I needed help um, and I needed institutional help and, um, and people to come in and help advise me on how to do that. And um, actually sold the majority of Ironheart to, um, to just two private investors um, who have a lot of experience running businesses and scaling businesses. And, um, and I actually took a year off at that, at that time to kind of regroup and recover um, and then came back a year later and that was kind of like i would say like ironheart phase two and that's where it was all right you know how do we turn this into a sustainable business model um from that point going forward and that's when we really focused on um on process training making things you know like getting down to a four-day work week um all kinds of things that were like really focused on making it a sustainable long-term business um and turn it into a real good business that people really wanted to come to and um and be a part of so ironheart four-day work week all around uh, we try to. I mean, that's kind of the goal, uh, because like I said, if we're if we're running, um, you know, if we're running canning jobs, um, you know, our canning jobs are, you know, anyway, eight to, to 10 to 12, sometimes the longer ones are 14 hours. We try to avoid those as much as possible. But stuff happens on site. Beers over carb. You got breakdowns. We got to get it done. Right. Stuff happens. Um, so we intentionally only schedule four days. Our ma our max schedule for a week for one canning line is only four canning jobs. Um, you know, in the heat of, let's say, busy season, there's some times that we break that. But um, for the most part, we are only scheduling um, at 80 percent of that would be 80 percent of capacity. And that way, that's only four working days um, of the week. And then that, that last day is for flex. And, if, you know, we typically will do a, a maintenance day and so forth like that on it. But awesome. Very cool. So yeah. my second question of what you mentioned earlier was, you know, you went to Panera's all across the country. And I, I too, like Panera, they're one of my more admired chain restaurants i would say so you know looking at businesses outside of craft beer are there any others that you've learned from yeah that's a, a, a good question um, any favorites you want to mention i the two i think you know really there are two panera's one i mean i think that just the overall kind of just consistency of quality everywhere is always amazing to me how that's achieved um and then the other one uh, honestly was southwest airlines um because I, and, you know, in the, in kind of like, say, you know, um, phase two of Ironheart, um, after it was just kind of the brute force, <laughs> kill, kill yourself, kill myself model, um, uh, you know, it was, all right, how do we scale this? There's a lot of opportunity in this. And how do, how do we kind of, you know, really scale this and, and get this level of consistency? And I think Southwest was it was, we don't really have, we do have a, uh, um, you know, a hub where we have a lot of our kind of core staff. Um, you know, our core engineering team, um, our core logistics team uh, that's up in Manchester, New Hampshire, um, where we have an office and uh, a bigger warehouse. Um, 
but we're generally like the Southwest Airlines of mobile canning. I mean, we are small. We're not, there's not a hub and spoke model. It's, it's just all, you know, satellite to satellite model and very close together. And, you know, and I think that that was, that was really one of the other things that um, was key to getting to us to a sustainable business model was having that really small, having been very, very local, getting drive times down um, to make it really sustainable. You know, in the early days of, you know, driving three, four, five hours to jobs, not sustainable, right? So um, we really focused on kind of getting our warehouse model, small teams, um, you know, like really a max kind of, a, we target three hours of drive time be between warehouses. So any teams are really very local for the most part, hour, hour and a half drives maximum to where they're going. So that was huge. And um, yeah, big inspiration. Two great inspirations there. And I just finished reading the book, Eight Paradoxes of Great Leadership by, it was Tim Elmore. And one thing that he mentioned was, you know, looking at all the companies you could have invested in, I think he said 70s, 80s, I don't remember the exact year, but he said, you know, you would think like the Microsofts, the right. Apple would give you the most return on your money. But the company that if you invested in whatever year he quoted was actually Southwest Airlines was going to give you the greatest return. Yeah, they've had a little rough go recently, but yeah, <laughs> for like the 30 years there, it was uh, was pretty was pretty good uh, through a lot of turmoil in the industry. Too. So let's talk a little bit more about leadership. I think it's a good transition now. I mean, you've been doing this for a decade now, you know. What has changed in your leadership style and what have you learned about yourself that's made you a better leader? Man, um, that's deep. And I, it, it's a, a really good question. Um, a lot, honestly, tremendous amount. I mean, transformation. Uh, I honestly, I would say in the early parts of the company, I had no idea what it was to be a leader. I mean, I, I knew that um, I knew that, um, you know, I needed to set an example, you know, and um you know, and in the early parts of Ironheart, um, it was really just me and just kind of going out there and, and you know, and brute forcing it um, out there and killing myself um, for it. So I, I, I didn't and then transform into kind of the next phase, which was growth um, and having to be a leader to, um, you know, to organize a culture and drive a culture and, and drive a business that people want to come to. Right. And be a part of to grow, grow their careers off of um massive transformation and um you know and i think that that's where i really came to the realize realization that um you know i can't just go and do everything myself um you know can't lead from the front like custer right because what happened to custer right um you know um he led from the front it worked for a while and then it ended right in a really bad way so um i had to really come to that realization that that's not it and um you know i think empowering people supporting um, giving the right direction, but then also giving the encouragement to um, go out on their own um, and and follow the path, but do it in their own way was was massive. Um, you know, and setting that culture was huge. So you know, I think that those were you know some of the big things that um, that I learned along the way, um, and then also not being um, not being so um, um, you know so so bent on everything being perfect 100% of the time because um, mistakes are going to happen. You know, um, and we're not not everybody's and none of us are going to make the right decisions at all times ever. And, um, you know, and so as long as we're making more decisions, good than bad, we're in a good spot and moving forward. You know, so um, so, yeah, I think it's big, big transformation for sure. No, very cool. And thank you for sharing all that. Now, you've been doing this 10 years and looking back over the past decade. What are just your observations and insights in the general state of the industry that you've you know observed that's fascinated you? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a, a big change. I mean, I think one thing that's um, apparent is just how fast the industry is and how fast it moves, you know. And when I, when I first started, um, the, you know, bombers were the predominant package for craft beer, right? Cans didn't exist. I mean, it was bottles, right? And, you know, and, and, um, and really bombers, you know, and within five years, bombers went out of existence, you know? So I think that that's, that's really an interesting aspect of it and cans are a prominent choice. It's something that I think about and I talk about all the time here at Ironheart because we can't take anything for granted, you know, look at that. Right. And I don't think that that's going to happen to cans, but, and go the other way, but it just, it means that this industry is a fast and moving industry. It's trend-based. It moves in directions. It shifts in directions. The consumer base shifts in all kinds of directions. So I think that that's, that's a big, big part of it. Um, but really, you know, when I started in, in 2012, I mean, there were less than 3000 breweries out there. Um, you know, now there's close to 10,000, um, which is massive. Right. And it just, uh, massively changing dynamic cans were barely available. Mobile canning didn't even exist at that time. Um, hazy, hazy IPAs didn't even exist at that time. Um, which is funny to think about, you know, um, when you look back at it. So I think that those, you know, those, um, those change a lot. I mean, competition has changed dramatically, right? When in back in those days, it was, it was wildly collegiate. Now that it's not that it isn't anymore, but it's a different level of collegiate before it was, there was just an open bucket of, of demand, demand heavily out, heavily outweighed supply. And you could just, the more the merrier, right? You could make as much beer as you could sell as much beer as you made, right? Craft beer was the golden goose and anybody could just open and sell. I mean, it was kind of like the wild west, um, you know, uh, 200 years ago when you could just go out there and grab 10,000 acres of land if you wanted and claim it. Right. I mean, that was, it, it was kind of the same thing. Um, um, you know, but that's changed. Right. And, you know, now that, um, now that, um, there are 10,000 breweries and I think, demand has waned a little bit. Um, there's, um, you know, people are now fighting over much smaller pieces of the pie, um, where people didn't have to fight at all before. So, um, you know, I think those are some, some big changes in the industry for sure. Now looking at the industry now, you know, how has quality control changed over the past decade? Yeah, uh, a tremendous amount. And I think driven by that fact, um, you know, when I started, um, we were always uber focused on quality and being the quality leaders. I, we have grown tremendously when I, from when I first started as well. Um, but, um, you know, back in the early days, uh, just, it wasn't as important cause it necessarily didn't need to be right. You could sell crap beer just sold cause it was beer. And you could, like I said, you could make as much as you wanted and sell as much as you wanted. Right. And now I think just the nature of kind of competition, um, driving quality, right. And driving a focus on quality and the standards. Um, and I, I think that that's huge. Um, and you know, not that the things were bad and people were, you know, making bad beer back in, back in those days, but you know, to me, I think it's very important for the industry um, that it's got that it's got to that point because the end of the day, like craft needs to be better than than macro beer, right? It it needs the beer needs to be better, right? Now, not just different. It needs to be better, right? And craft needs to be better. And I, so I think the industry now focusing more on quality and um, improving the standards. I think craft beer now is better than it's ever been. I mean, the quality that's out there now is excellent across the board, and um, it has to be. No, I, I agree on that one. You know, you mentioned bombers, and I don't know the last time I've actually seen a bomber, but I shared many of bombers back in the day, looking a decade ago. What yeah. are you seeing right now in just the can sizes and the capabilities that you have? Yeah. Um, I mean, we can can any can size that's out there for the most part. I mean, we're even doing plastic plastic cans. I mean, they're bottles, but they're bottles that look like cans, and you put a you put an aluminum lid on it. Um, 
we can do any can size. We have a great engineering team that's out there. So really, um, there's no can that we can't can. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think generally like the, the competition has driven um, changes to the package, you know, and I, it needs to, right? Because now there's not only quality focus, but you got to have something that's different, right? And I think people are looking for something that's different, that looks different out on the shelf. So, um, you know, branching out of just standard 12 and 16 ounce cans to, you know, the sleek cans, um, you know, um, 19.2 ounce cans, um, make, you know, driving things that are different, you know, out there on the shelf. What's your favorite can size out there right now? Let's say from here, because it, it probably differs between products. Yeah, um, I, I have a pint. I am good at a pint. 12 ounces is too, is too little. 19 ounces is too much. I think, you know, 16 ounces is perfect. How about you? A pint is a good standard. You know, a, yeah. a good pint. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, a lot's changed from 2013 to 2023. So let's look specifically at the supply chain. You know, how has that changed and impact your business over the past decade? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Massively, massively. Um, when I first started Ironheart, um, you know, crafting cans was minimal. There was very, and and uh, the manufacturers were specifically Crown. Ball has kind of always done their own thing. They weren't really focused on small volumes. Um, but specifically Crown wanted to get into craft beer. And so when I first started, um, everything that we were doing was in printed cans, right, for the manufacturer, because Crown would literally sell um, a a, their minimum order size was a third of a trailer load, which is only like 150 barrels of beer, not a lot. So everybody that we worked with initially bought printed cans. That's all we were canning, you know, very little shrink sleeves, no labeled cans. It was just you no know, blank cans with labels on them. It was all printed cans because you only needed to buy a third of a trailer load. Um, and that's what we did. And that, you know, in the original days, um, we warehoused everything at Ironheart, kind of stored all, all our customers' cans, brought them with us. It was great. And um, and then about 2015, Crown basically about faced and shut that whole system down overnight. And um, I remember that day because, I mean, we have I, I think we had, I had like at that time, maybe 30 to 40 um, breweries that we worked with all buying printed cans. And Crown gave me the list of their cut list and they basically stopped making cans. And it was almost my entire customer list. I was like, what are we going to do? Like they literally just stopped making their cans. We're not doing that. Um, we're raising our minimums to a full trailer load. Lead times are 16 weeks out. You know, it's, um, it's over. And so, um, you know, at that time quickly shifted to shrink sleeve labeled cans because that was the only option, um, <clears throat> at that point as the only thing that breweries could do. And fortunately there was an alternative. So we didn't really get a downturn in production, but the problem is it's way more expensive, right? So the margins that people were enjoying with the, the, the printed cans, I mean, shrink sleeve labeled cans are two to three times as much. So way more expensive. And then that drove kind of the changes into blank cans, putting a label on it, um, you know, which then kind of turned into, you know, shrink sleeves and blank cans with labels were kind of the two big options that were going on. Um, you know, now we're moving to digital printed cans, but, um, but the supply chain has been very fragmented over the years. Um, and there are times when, um, you know, when the, the manufacturers, uh, you know, make bad projections and don't produce enough and the craft industry runs out of cans. And, um, you know, and that's, that's happened probably three times in the last 10 years, uh, that that's happened. And it's, it's, it's traumatic because, you know, they're going to just cut craft off and just, you know, run big orders for the, for the macro beer brands, um, instead of craft. And it's, it's, you know, it's easy when they, when they run out of line time. So that becomes a big problem. And, um, you know, one of the things that we did is we have, we, we have, 
great relationships. Um, we've never run out of cans, which I think is a huge value add to our customers because um, aside from kind of the quality that we bring, you know, working with us, you have an insulated supply chain. You never have to worry about running out with Ironheart. Um, and that's massive. Um, and then, um, <clears throat> but, you know, generally it, it, it's, it's caused a lot of havoc and just, you know, through the pandemic, um, that was, that was just as scary. I mean, you know, manufacturers basically ran out of cans completely. Cans were coming in from all over the world, the fuel, you know, to, 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 to feed, you know, the, the, the craft beer here. Um, and, um, and it was, a, it was a challenging time for sure. What do you see the long-term impacts of the pandemic on canning and Ironheart for that matter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, um, a good question. I mean, I, you know, originally, um, with, you know, when the pandemic first started, um, everybody was shut down. You know, the only thing that they could do was was sell out a package, um, which initially was um, insane for us. I mean, we, you know, that was um, at the time, every single person in Ironheart, myself included, was out there canning almost every day um, because it was the only thing that our, that our customers could sell and any brewery could sell. So any and every single brewery out there, that's all they they did they, they just had to put beer in package so we were going all out originally um initially and then um you know kind of after the after effects have worn out i think you know we're in a little bit of a slump period right now um uh which is the after effect and so i think you know generally demand is is kind of down at this point um from the pandemic um uh right now things are a little bit slower um however the supply side of the industry is coming back it's more stable now. Domestic supply is um, as good as it's ever been now. So, um, so that's that's a positive. Um, but you know, I think that generally one of the things that the pandemic did was, um, you know, while people kind of survived and were propped up through it by a lot of uh, funding that came through, um, you know, I think businesses are hurting more than it might seem. You know, demand is down a little bit right now, and I think people are, you know, with where the economy is in inflation. Um, Probably the first time that I think that I've seen in craft beer kind of making consumers making the decision to trade down on their purchase, you know, um, and, uh, and and instead of buying, you know, the more expensive four pack are going and buying the less expensive 12 pack. Right. I, I think that that's happening right now. Um, and I do think that'll come back around uh, personally. But I think yeah, I mean, so you've learned a lot and you've witnessed a lot the past 10 years. You mentioned you see coming back. Where do you see the industry grow, going right now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I do think that uh, that generally um, we're it's not that demand for, let's say, craft beer is is stagnant at this point. Right. I think personally, I think that that, like I said, there are decisions to trade down that are happening right now um, that are going to come back. Right. And so I think that um, uh, personally, I, my belief is that the demand is going to come back for craft beer and, um, and bounce back from, um, you know, from, from where I would say we're, you know, fairly, fairly low right now. Um, um, however, I do think though that, um, you know, through the, the, the 2000s and then 2010, we had a tremendous amount of consumers coming into the craft beer market, right? Just f f people flocking into the craft beer market. And that's why the industry went, you know, and skyrocketed so much. Um, it's hard to say that, you know, there's going to be a, a tremendous amount of more people entering the craft beer market itself. Um, I do think demand within the consumer base is going to come back up, you know, but it, to, in my opinion, it, for craft beer, will probably stabilize to an extent after it does bounce back. Um, I see the new uh, the new growth in craft being craft kind of other beverages, because I think that that's where the 
new consumers are coming into, right? The people who don't necessarily like not everybody drinks beer, right? Um, and um, you know, so I feel like all the people that drink beer have kind of that want have entered the craft bar beer market that are beer drinkers. Um, the other people, come, in my opinion, the people that are going to come in now, the new consumers, the craft, are going to be craft other products, and that's why I really see the trajectory still going up for craft, but it's in other products and um, all the new customers coming in. So I think you see that shift in some breweries too, like they're making other products. The breweries, um, a lot of breweries are getting into you know spirits to an extent. I mean, seltzers, um, spirits, um, craft coffee, kombucha, CBD, now THC beverages, like. All of those are, to me, are, are what are going to really drive kind of the new craft consumers coming into the market. And that's that's where I, I kind of see the, the future of craft and, and the growth in it. Absolutely. The need for innovation and diversification. I, I completely agree with you on there, Tyler. Now, looking at brewers, you know, what makes the best brewers the best? What are they doing that's causing them to win that separates themselves from the rest of the market? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think to me, one of the most important aspects, I, I, obviously quality, right? Quality is so massive, but how do you get to that quality, right? Um, I, I, I like to think about like, what's the future of, of craft and what people are buying. And I don't necessarily think it's like um, necessarily as a specific beer style. Like obviously lagers are coming back right now, but I think that just generally people like to drink lagers and more craft brewers are making lagers right now. So <laughs> I think that that's really where that's coming from. But um, to me, it's about quality, right? And it, that that's what's gonna drive success, right? And so to me, the best brewers become the best brewers because of a focus on quality. And what what is that drive to be focused on quality? And to me, quality beer is consistent beer, right? Achieving any beer style, whether it's a hazy IPA, whether it's a blonde, whether it's a lager, you know, whether it's a West Coast IPA, porter, whatever, to me, the quality is consistency because it's easy to make a million different beers and just change up recipe but to make the same beer and drive that level of quality with that same beer is the hardest thing in the world and i think that that the best brewers do that and they do that through consistent process attention to detail in all aspects of that process and um you know and really focus on wanting the end product in all levels of the production process from the materials they source the raw ingredients they source through the brewing process, through the cellaring process, through the packaging process, focused on all all the details associated with each one because they all have their value in creating the end product, and um, and that's where I see the best brewers out there. Um, no, on that's great. Their details. And I'm guilty of it. I talk so much about the importance of experience in craft beer, but unless you're making a quality product, then it's all for naught. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely importance of quality control there. Now let's look at Ironheart. You know, we talked about the future of the industry, but what's next for Ironheart? Where do you see Ironheart growing over the next decade? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, I think that, like I said, I, I'm I'm excited about. Um, you know, I think that you know we're like I said, we're a, a, to me a bit of a, a low on demand right now. Volumes are down, right? So I do I do generally think that there's going to be a, a good bounce back in in craft beer um, volumes that's going to come back. Um, Alternate products is is going to be massive, you know, and that's where we're going to see just huge growth in kind of the alternate product verticals, specifically ready to drink cocktails. Honestly, THC beverages right now are um, are going to pop, you know, in the markets where they're they're available. Um, so I really think that those alternate beverages are are kind of going to be the future um, for us. We have a huge co-packing network right now, which is driving a lot of those alternate products, um, you know, with centrally based co-packers where people bring, you know, where they're doing all the non-alcoholics, um, you know, all the RTDs, wine is at these ones, uh, at the co-packers. And 
that's a, a growing part of our business. Right now we have um, 12 to 15 co-packing relationships, most of, most of them with dedicated canning lines that we have in there where we're just feeding all kinds of different brands and products into them and, and packaging. Um, so I see that being a growing part of our business um, for sure. Um, you know, and I mean, geographically, I really, we're kind of everything east of the Mississippi at this point. Um, right now, I can't see us growing geographically. I mean, it would mean kind of jumping over the middle part of the country, um, which isn't there, but um, that's where I think it's focusing on all these, all these new product verticals. Um, you know, and also uh, where the industry has gone uh, at this point, and, uh, you know, I think especially post-pandemic has led people to making different business decisions about their goals in business, you know, and um, originally when I first started, it said that craft beer was a golden goose. You could sell as much as you made. So the focus was just more, bigger, more, bigger, more, bigger, more, grow, go, 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 grow, distro, distro, distro. I think that focus has changed completely to now running a bigger business, running a better business, right? And focusing on, um, on you know, honestly, maybe contracting a little bit, being more focused in your market, um, you know, instead of bigger to make more money. Now it's, we could probably make more money as a more efficient business and be better off half the size, right? Versus if we were twice the size, we make half, you know, half as, like, you know, half as much money as we were, if we were half the size, we'd make twice as much money. So. I think that's a focus. And honestly, I think that that's going to be a huge part of our future because um, I'm a firm believer in our value and the, the outsourced decision, I think, and what we bring to the table that our customers don't need to focus on where they can just focus on running their business, lean, mean, and efficient. Um, and we're that kind of that plug and play, um, just right sized variable cost as they grow, um, I think is going to be a big piece of it. So we're actually seeing right now a lot of people who had in-house their own canning lines get out of that and come back and worse and and then outsourcing to us, um, outsourcing capacity augmentation to us um, instead of growing. And that, I think that that's honestly is going to be a big piece of our growth for the future. So now's a great time to put it in there. So if anyone's looking to learn more about Ironheart or simply pick your brain about the future of canning, how can they contact you or the team at Ironheart, Tyler? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you could send any, I mean, we have, you go to our website, um, there's contact page on there, obviously. Um, you know, we have an info at email. Um, our emails are really easy. Mine is just Tyler at ironheartcanning.com. So um, that's super easy. Uh, Roger, who's a, who's a partner at Ironheart and he kind of runs all of sales and, and, and you know, and, and, and our partnership management at Ironheart. Um, he's Roger at ironheartcanning.com. So we are super easy to get in touch with um, and would love to chat. So Tyler, I've got two final questions for you that I'm pretty curious about. The yeah. first is, you know, how are you going to celebrate your 10 years of Ironheart? I'm sure myself and all 170 team members are very interested in what they plans <laughs> are. Um, man, that is a wonderful question. Um, I have to think about that one. You know, because I'm always just we just keep going and, um, you know, and don't look back. But I think that's a great question because it is important to look back and kind of celebrate things. Um, so, uh, you know, probably have we have a culture day every year um, and it's at the end of the summer uh, where we don't go out and do any canning at all. And uh, we just have a day where everybody gets together at their warehouses. We have a, a whole company video chat um, where we come on. Um, we celebrate and we give an Ironheart cup out there to the best warehouse in the company and they get a physical cup, it's like Stanley cup. 
um and the whole company votes on who gets the iron heart cup which is cool um and so i you know we'll probably do some along those lines and have that day be an extra special day i think no i love it i'm sure your employees and your team will really enjoy that now final yeah. question for you tyler will there ever be an iron heart brewing company uh, <laughs> I can say no <laughs> to that. Um, uh, I actually just closed down the business entity that was Ironheart Brewing Company. <laughs> How but, long um, did you hold on to it for? Until it expired. So um, <laughs> it is. But uh, but um, honestly, if I was ever to make a beverage, I would probably do cider or wine, to be honest. Um, you know, I think I'm happy where we're at. Uh, beers, like I said, right now, the imports of quality is there and i mean you know the beer that's produced out there right now is just phenomenal so um i like you know i like where we're at i mean you know iron hardware service provider i think it's the right spot right place to be um and um you know that's uh that's probably where we want to be but i love it well tyler it's been fantastic diving into your entrepreneurial journey and looking at the future of Ironheart. i wish you many decades more of success and i look yeah. forward to sharing a pint with you soon yeah, whatever absolutely. point that may be for sure. For sure. I appreciate it, Andrew. Uh, it's been a great, great chat with you for sure. Thank you. Thank you for listening and being an important part of our community. Please hit the subscribe button to stay on top of more sessions that can help you grow as a craft beer professional and join us for more conversations in our community on Facebook. We appreciate you. Cheers.